it great that we are in Australia where we get to celebrate Easter, yeah? yeah. And we get a long weekend because of that. We get lots of holidays. Uh, one of the things I found out about holidays is the origins of the word. Does anyone know where the word holiday actually came from? No shout-outs this morning. No hecklers in the crowd. I like my hecklers. Um, the ho- uh, holiday actually came from the word holy day, literally. I- are you like, were you shouting out? <laughs> should have shouted it out. But it came from the word holy day. And in particular, uh, it, it, when we look at the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, God instituted a whole bunch of different festivals. And during these festivals, the whole, uh, they called them the congregation of Israel, were meant to gather together and to celebrate uh, uh, what the festival was all about. And God would call it a holy convocation, as some of your Bibles might say. And the holy convocation was uh, such that you were not allowed to work because you're meant to be reflecting on, on, on an aspect of God, you know, what He has done, what He's accomplished, or what is He doing, and that was what this whole uh, uh, holy day was about, and so through time, we celebrated these holy days, and, and now we just call them holidays, and so I guess there's an interesting note that whenever you have a holiday, Remember that a part of it is probably somewhere along the line instituted for us to reflect on God. And I love that you've chosen to take your long weekend, a part of your long weekend, to be here with us uh, to reflect on God and what He has done as you know, you're, you're practicing a holy day. So well done to you. And this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about a set of holy days or festivals in the Old Testament that relate specifically to our Easter For those who think that Easter came from some weird pagan religion, that is not the case. Easter, uh, for us as Christians, come from uh, particularly uh, the word Passover or Pasha, uh, as it would be called in Hebrew. And interestingly, as I was doing the research, uh, the Passover wasn't a festival that stood alone. The Passover actually came in a block of three different festivals, and we're going to talk about these because these festivals, as I mentioned, are not just something that the Israelites uh, uh, celebrated for many years, but it also is a picture and a type of the life that God has instituted uh, or made available for us. And so, are you ready to go through three festivals? Today's message is going to be called The Lamb, the Bread, and the Sheaf. The Lamb, the Bread, and the Sheaf. I hope I'm saying sheaf right. It doesn't come out sheaf. It's like chief, but with an S at the start. The lamb, the bread, and the sheaf. And I've got a few props here with me this morning. I've got my lamb. I've got my bread. And this will represent a sheaf. For those of us, it was actually a lot bigger and it was a lot better, but my cat ate half of it. I'm not even joking. This is not one of those things where the dog ate my homework. My cat ate half of this and vomited it onto our bed. Um, So the sheaf is not meant to be eaten by cats, just letting you know. But we will talk about these in turn. And we will first start with the lamb. The lamb is representative of the Passover. And if you've been a Christian for uh, a long time, or maybe you would have heard the word Passover being used. See, the Passover was a festival uh, that Israel celebrated in commemorating what God did to bring the Israelites out of Egypt into freedom. 
It's a very, very important uh, um, uh, commemorating point, kind of like when we re uh, remember things like Anzac Day, you know, how, how those soldiers fought for freedom. We, uh, the Israelites remembered Passover as a way that God brought freedom to them. And uh, particularly, it was celebrating and remembering the final plague that came uh, upon Egypt. As many of you know the story, if you watch some of those old school movies, I love them. Um, God had sent um, Moses as a deliverer of Israel, and, and he went into uh, Egypt, and he spoke to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no way, Jose, because he's Mexican. No, not really. Uh, but, you know, Pharaoh said, no. And nine plagues came, and finally, the tenth plague was supposed to come. The tenth plague is known as the plague of the firstborn. And for many people, it, this is a sticking point for, for them, and maybe for you as well, because God killing kids sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? But what we need to know is that when God sends His wrath, it is always in tune with justice. And so when God sent this tenth plague of the firstborn, it wasn't just something that He cooked up in the back of His mind and He went, you know what? You know what will make Pharaoh really suffer? I'm going to kill his son and he's going to get it and so he's going to know that I'm God. That's not actually what was taking place because a few chapters ago when we read about what Pharaoh was doing, Pharaoh was a terrible, terrible person. He was the one that was killing the Hebrew kids. He was saying that every firstborn child of the Hebrews must die because we want to control their population. And so I don't know how many of these kids would have died at Pharaoh's hands. And so the, 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 the consequence of his actions, if you will, and the justice of, uh, the, 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 that was uh, instituted by God because of the incident is the plague of the firstborn child. Now, there's so much more we could talk about that, but that's not the topic for today. But anyway, we have this plague of the firstborn child, and God was going to send an angel of death to come over uh, the whole land of Egypt, and uh, the firstborn child was going to die. And so God told the Israelites that they were to do something that I think is a little bit strange. They were supposed to take a lamb, they were supposed to kill this lamb, this is my son's lamb, so I will not kill it, um, and it's supposed to smear its blood on the doorpost. Uh, I find this really interesting because I think that God is pretty cool, right? God knows a lot of stuff, right? You, you would think that, you know, the guy who created, and no, I shouldn't even call him guy, but it's God that created the heavens and the earth, would be able to tell the difference between an Egyptian and a Hebrew. Fair enough to say? Yep. Why did God tell the Hebrew people that they needed to slaughter a whole bunch of lambs and paint his blood on the doorpost. It's like, this angel, is this angel a little bit like blind or, or does he have some like problem with knowing that, because all the Israelites also lived in a place called Goshen. Say, so, just don't go to Goshen, angel, just go to the other places. Why do you need to kill lambs and paint it blood to let me know not to kill you? Well, I think it's kind of interesting because even though the Hebrew people were Hebrew by ethnicity, maybe they weren't really following God in their hearts. 
And the Egyptians that were Egyptian by ethnicity, it might not mean that they did not actually love God. And so God made this action so that people could choose either to trust that God was going to come through with what He said He was going to do, or you could suffer the consequences. So ever, even though we say that, that you know, it is pretty terrible that God would send this plague that would kill all these people, uh, the, the, the truth is that they could have simply gone to the Hebrew people and said, hey, what are you doing to be safe from this? All through the 10 plagues, the Israelites were not suffering the consequences of those plagues. The, the, the Egyptian people actually knew this. And so if they trusted that the Hebrew God was that powerful and that strong, they could simply have said, let's all kill lambs and let's put this blood on the doorpost because this God means business. Anyway, that's my take on it. And, um, and, and so... Uh, um, uh, the, the, the Israelites did this, and the angel of death came, and when it saw the blood on the doorpost, it will pass over, pass over that house, and the whole household will be safe, and that's where we get the word pass over from. And so that is uh, the first festival, and this festival in particular is very much linked to Easter. And I want to show you a, a, a bunch of similarities between the Passover and the Jesus that we worship, because you will see that even though this festival was instituted about an event that took place thousands of years before Jesus, the parallels are no coincidence. And so the first thing that I want to point out is that uh, when the Israelites celebrated the Passover, they would take the lamb four days before it was meant to be crucified or slaughtered, and they would hide it. It's called the hidden lamb. Jesus actually entered Jerusalem four days before his crucifixion. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, or what we call Palm Sunday, it wasn't just a random date where Jesus went, you know what, I'm going to enjoy Jerusalem just before I die. No, no, Jesus knew that he was fulfilling the ultimate Passover. And so he went into Jerusalem four days before he was meant to be killed. And the lamb was meant to be the firstborn lamb. Jesus is known as the firstborn of God, also the firstborn of Mary. And, and another uh, fact is that the lamb is, without, is meant to be without blemish, and Jesus, we know, is without blemish. The next one is that the lamb is meant to be killed between two evenings, and Jesus was killed at noon, literally between two evenings. And the whole assembly was meant to kill the lamb, kill the Passover lamb. The whole assembly was gathered at Pilate's courtyard, and they were shouting, crucify him. The whole assembly killed Jesus, and the body of the lamb was then to be eaten, and um, Jesus said that my body is, to be, is broken and to be eaten by you. He also teaches about that before these events. And, and finally, another note is that no bone of the lamb was to be broken, and none of Jesus' bones were broken. He was, lying, he was uh, uh, hanging on the cross, and it was Roman custom to break the legs of those that were being crucified to speed up their deaths. Jesus did not have that done to him because he was already dead. And it's kind of interesting that a lot of these factors don't matter to the actual killing of the lamb and the painting of the blood. But a lot of these factors 
point towards the fact that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And let's look at John chapter 1, verse 29. When John the Baptist was about to baptize Jesus, and he sees him coming towards him, he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7b, it says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Why I'm pointing this out is that the freedom that God brought into the Israel nation through the Passover is the very same picture of what Christ did at the cross. Just as that lamb brought about salvation for the Israelites when they were still slaves in Egypt, so when Christ died, it purchases our freedom to walk away from slavery to sin. This is a very important reason why the Passover is completely linked up with Easter. And if uh, one year, if anyone is up for it and willing to do the research, we, when we were in Israel a few years ago, and we celebrated some Sabbaths uh, in, in Israel, and, and they talked about some of these different uh, uh, things about preparing the bread and the lamb, so many of these things point to, to Jesus. Even how they cooked the bread would lead to certain scarring on the bread, which is exactly how Jesus would have been scarred on his back. All of these things are linked up so that we understand that Jesus wasn't just something that God cooked up when he went, the world is stuffed, I need to send my son. This was so that we can understand that thousands of years before Jesus came, God was already saying, you need a lamb to die for your sins, and my son is going to do that. How powerful is that? But the Passover is not just a, a celebrated, um, we'll come back to that. Uh, the Passover wasn't just celebrated in and of itself. In fact, uh, if you go back into he Hebrew custom, uh, more likely you're going to hear that they are going to celebrate not the Passover, but the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Okay, And the Festival of Unleavened Bread started uh, with the Passover, uh, uh, but will continue for seven days. And that's why that festival is more well-known in Jewish custom, because it's celebrated for seven days as opposed to one meal. And what the Hebrew people would do is that, or what they were instructed to do, is that they would need to get rid of all yeast or leaven from their houses. Uh, this, this tiny little dust, they would need to get rid of all of it from their houses for seven full days, and they were to make flatbread, bread that doesn't rise. Um, I don't know if this, if this is flatbread, isn't it? <laughs> yes. yes, it's pretty flat. Um, <laughs> We can all have communion later together. I'm sure that there'll be enough. And, and they were supposed to eat this bread for seven days and ensure that the house was completely free of leaven. So, so how does a Passover link to uh, the festival of unleavened bread? Why did God institute for the Israelites not just to celebrate the Passover, which celebrates their freedom, but they would also need to, immediately after celebrating freedom, they would need to celebrate flat bread? Kind of strange, isn't it? Well, as you read the Bible, you will find many references to leaven or yeast. And leaven and yeast is always representative of sin. 
it always represents sin. How it represents sin in particular in the Bible is that they would say a little tiny little bit of yeast would work its way into the whole dough so that the whole dough would be puffed up. It would rise because of that yeast. And so he said sin, even just a tiny little bit of sin, can work itself into a huge area and create this puffiness that is actually, in, in this sense, it is bad. A tiny little bit of impurity can destroy the whole dough. That is what this picture is meant to be. And so the Israelites were supposed to commemorate the fact that now that they are free, they now have seven days to get rid of all sin in their lives. And the number seven is not just a number that is random. The number seven is a number of completeness in the Bible. And so what they're supposed to be living out annually as they celebrate this festival, they celebrate that God has set them free from their slavery, and so now I'm going to free myself of sin. I want you to hold that picture in mind. And every single year, they would take the time to consider whether there was any leaven, any yeast in their households. I think this is a part of the picture about Easter that we forget. We celebrate freedom, but we don't really understand freedom for what? freedom to what? We love that Jesus died for us, and we say that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, took the wrath of God upon Himself, but then we don't have a response to it. Our response to what Jesus did is that we practice being unleavened bread. Let me show this to you in... um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we've read the second half being about Jesus, our Passover lamb. Let me read the whole verse to you. It says, Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You know, this, this passage is really interesting because it doesn't say that you get rid of the old yeast so that you can become the unleavened bread. Paul actually says you get rid of the old yeast because you already are unleavened bread. It says that how are we already unleavened bread is because the lamb, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus' sacrifice already gives us a new identity, not one that is puffed up, not one that is fluffy and useless, but one that is dense, one that is rich, one that is unleavened, and that is our identity in Christ. What we need to understand is that Easter is not just about what Christ did with our past, but how He's identified identifying us today. That is what Easter is about. But then the Israelites also celebrated a third festival. And the third festival, honestly, I didn't really know much about because I didn't even really understand the English word sheaf. And apparently, this can be considered a a very sad sheaf. But a sheaf basically is just one standing grain. And so, This was a a festival that was instituted a little bit later. The Passover and unleavened bread was practiced practically straight after the original Passover, which another fact, by the way, the Israeli, uh, the Jewish, the Hebrew calendar actually restarted at Passover. You know, like now it's already April. And, And so 
for, for the Hebrew people in Egypt, it would already have been the fourth month of the year. But when God said, you are going to celebrate the Passover, He said, uh, now that you celebrate the Passover, the Passover will become the first month for you of the year. It completely restarts their whole calendar. It restarts their whole mindset about how this world works. Beautiful. But they would celebrate the Passover and unleavened bread, and they would also, in the middle of that seven days, celebrate a third festival called the Festival of, un, uh, of the Sheaf of the First Fruit. What this third festival was about was that uh, um, when, when the Hebrews get into the Promised Land, they would become farmers. That's what people in those times to do. And when they plant their crops, especially uh, the barley and the wheat, at this time of the Passover, the barley would begin to start to rise. And what people were meant to do in this festival is that they would pick the first sheaf that appears, and they would bring it to the priest at the temple, and the priest would literally wave it before God. That's it. Wow. <laughs> what a festival. I mean, like, can you hear the bells and the whistles? No. It's kind of strange. But what this actually meant for the Israeli people was really significant because what they were doing is that they were taking the first of the first fruits and bringing it to God. And when the priest would wave it before God at the temple, it signified that the rest of the harvest to come is already sanctified is already blessed, is under the protection of God. And so for the Hebrew people that received this instruction to do this practice, they were still in the wilderness. I want you to picture yourself. You have escaped slavery. You're in the middle of a place that is called the wilderness, the desert. There is nothing happening here. And here you have God saying, oh, now that you've escaped slavery and one day I will bring you to the land, when you get into the land and when you have a harvest, the first thing you do is that when the first one pops up, you take it to me and wave it before me. Not a very big sacrifice for you, but then only then will you understand that I'm the God of the harvest and I'm the God who will bring in the blessing and the sustenance and everything that you will need. For the person sitting in the middle of the desert, it is an amazing promise from God that I am going to have a harvest. And when I, when I say, you know, bring the first sheaf to me and wave it before God, they're not going like, oh, come on, man. All I want is just to sit at home, have a little cup of I need to take this little thing, bring it to the priest, and he kind of does that. And that, no, 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 he said, I, I can do that. I will do that because I've seen you free me from slavery, and I believe your promise that you are bringing me into a good and abundant place, and that your promises are going to be set when I live according to your ways. And so if you want one, you want 10, God, I'll bring you 10. I'll bring you 20 if that's what it means to have your hand upon my life. That's a pretty amazing, well, this is terrible, but it's a pretty amazing picture of what God can you see the past? Can you see how these three things work together? There's freedom, there's a new identity in our response, but there's also the promise of God. When we think about Easter, it's not just Jesus has died for my sin and that's it. It's Jesus has died for my sin, so now I'm a new creation and I'm living under the promises of God. 
And I want to point out one more thing to you about this third festival. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is kind of crazy. I think he's just kind of, I love, I love Paul's writing. And 1 Corinthians uses these three pictures beautifully together. Remember, I've already quoted from 1 Corinthians about the Passover lamb, about the unleavened bread. But he says about the sheaf, he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. What this is basically saying is this. Jesus, as the first, the first fruits, as Paul calls him, was the first person to rise from the dead, to be presented to God. Jesus' resurrection life is the first, and it's followed by us. See, God's intention when it comes to sin, when it comes to death, is not that we, I mean, the flesh, the, the, the human death that we face is not final. Is what the Bible teaches us. What the Bible teaches us is that there is life and life eternal. There is this resurrection life that is available for me. And when Christ was risen from the dead, as part of this festival, it was meant to represent that the resurrection life wasn't just for Jesus. It was for every single person that would follow Him. It was for the rest of the harvest to come. I am part of that harvest. You can be part of that harvest. When we live under the freedom of Christ and with this new identity, then we are also identifying with the resurrection life that Christ has given to us. When we celebrate Easter, it's not just celebrating that I can go on with my life as it used to be. It is celebrating that because of Christ, I am completely different. The old is gone and the new has come. I now have resurrection life. In our church, we quote John 10 verse 10 all the time because it's a beautiful verse. It says that Christ has come that we can have real and eternal life, more and better life. This abundant life is meant to be our inheritance. Why? Because Christ was the firstborn. He was the first fruit. He was the one that goes before and He brings access to each and every single one of us. If you can't get excited about resurrection life, it's because you know nothing about life. If you understand that going through every day, just toiling, just getting through it, that's not the kind of life that Christ has for us is accessed through a completely different way. Our lives are meant to be full of vigor, full of purpose, full of meaning, where difficult situations come, but they don't change who I am. They don't pull me down like they used to because I am living in resurrection life. I'm not saying that you're not going to have difficulties on this plane of existence. The Bible tells us to be ready for it. But when we face trials of any kind, I know that I'm not just looking at the old way of life and going, where did that go? Because I said, that is gone. The life I now live, I live for Christ, who has died, been raised to life, and I now live under that life. I want to show you one final 
very interesting thing that I learned, if I can get the band up. We're going to go back to the Passover. And um, there was one little interesting thing about the Passover that I learned. Uh, in Psalm 105, in recording what God had done through the Passover through in, in song, in verses 34 to 35, this is what the psalmist says. He says, Then he, being God, struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their manhood. He brought out Israel laden with silver and gold, which actually happened because God actually told the Israelites, when you are leaving slavery, please go to your neighbors and ask them for their silver and gold. And amazingly, because of the fear of God, all the uh, Egyptians were like, please take this, please. They, they, they actually looted, they spoiled Egypt. That's literally what the Bible says. The word spoils come from this idea that the war has taken place and the victors are the ones that are taking all the spoils. But it says that Israel spoiled Egypt without even needing to fight because God was fighting their battles. That's a beautiful picture of God setting them up for what was to come. But then it has this little phrase, and from among their tribes, no one faulted. No one faulted. And I, I used to just kind of read over that and go, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. But a theologian that I was um, uh, researching from, he said, no, 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 no. These guys were slaves doing manual labor. They were carrying bricks, laying bricks every single day under the hot sun. They had to make those bricks. They had to do everything to fulfill what their taskmasters, the Egyptians, were asking for. For this psalmist to say that not a single one of them faulted, all of them were strong and all of them were healthy, there must be something else that is going on. And then we go on to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. And what is happening in that is that Israel had fallen away from God. They weren't, they weren't practicing uh, their relationship with God. They weren't practicing the festivals. But along comes a, a man named King Hezekiah. He, he restores the temple and he begins to read up about the old law. And he said, gosh, we haven't celebrated these festivals for a long time. And so he said, we need to celebrate the Passover. However, it was already the second month and not the first month. They were a bit late. And so Hezekiah just said, you know what, we need to go ahead with this. And he says to God, say, God, forgive us for celebrating this a month late. Next year, we'll go back to the first month, but we really need to do this right now. And then we have in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 20, it says, And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And I used to think that this verse just simply meant that maybe a plague had already broken up amongst the Israelites because they were following the wrong pattern of the Passover. They weren't really following God. So I was like, oh, maybe God was like, you guys get a little bit of lice or, you know, you get a few boils or whatever it meant. I, I, don't, I don't know. But as I was looking to this, there was no record, no record that the people were sick because of what God was doing. Rather, this is talking about the fulfillment of God answering Hezekiah. Because the Passover brings healing. The Passover brings healing. And this theologian made it very specific. He said, the eating of the lamb seems to have healing qualities. That when the original Hebrew people were escaping Egypt and as they huddled in their houses and they ate quickly, of the, by the way, they had to eat it quickly because God told them, you eat that lamb, the Passover happens and then Egypt will cast you out. 
They needed to be ready to leave at midnight after eating this lamb. That's what they were doing. And what they were doing when they ate this lamb, apparently, suddenly, something happened where their health was restored, preparing them for the journey ahead. I love this because in, in Isaiah 53 verse 5 it says, But He, being Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. When we partake of Easter, when we understand what Christ has done for us, there is a healing that takes place that enables us to go on and be a new identity, living the resurrection life that God has for us. You know, when you heard about needing to get rid of a sin, some of us will go, you know, I don't think I'll ever be able to get there. I don't think that I'm ever going to be good enough for this God who demands perfection from me. I don't think I could live up to that. But what Christ is saying is that you don't have to deal with that because I did. That when you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood, what I'm doing in your life is I'm saying that you are healed, you are made whole, that freedom is yours, and you now have a new identity. It's not something that you work for. It's something that you live out. It's not something that you have to strive for. It's something that you rest in. It's not something that you push towards. It's something that you just simply receive. And so when we celebrate Easter, we don't just celebrate that our past has been dealt with. We celebrate that our futures are now bright. We don't just celebrate that our sins have been washed away. We celebrate that a new identity has been formed. The Passover talks about God's covering the unleavened bread talks about our response. And the first fruits talk about God's promise. Easter. This beautiful picture of what God wants to do in our lives. It's not to make you obligated to Him. But it's for you to see that He has promised great and many things for you. He severed slavery to sin and set you up for a new path towards life. And so this morning as I close, if I can get everyone just to close your eyes for a moment, this morning if you want to receive Jesus into your life, if you want to, I know it sounds weird, but eat of His flesh, if you want to receive the healing that He has made for you, made available for you, I'm not just talking about if you are physically sick. I'm talking about this sickness that holds you back from being able to live the fullness of what Christ has made available for you. Then please say this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. Wash away my sin. Heal me and make me whole again. I pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.